We are continuing in our series on prayer today with sort of a painful and a little bit different, uh, difficult aspect of prayer, and that's prayer in the midst of grief and suffering. It's in these times that prayer for me personally often comes the easiest and often sometimes the hardest. (laughs) You want to pray, but you only have tears and you have anger. You don't want to pray, but you know you should pray. Others pray for you and you know they mean well, but you're just numb to their words. You pray for others, but you wish you could somehow do something more. I wish I could help them in a tangible way, but I, I can't do something else. I don't, I don't know what to do. Your pain doesn't magically go away, and neither does the pain of those you love. Grief and prayer for the Christian, they go hand in hand as we walk together through the valley of the shadow of death. And this really shouldn't surprise us. If you read the Bible, if you know the Bible, it's filled with stories of grief and suffering and loss and and pain because we know how the beginning starts with sin, with disobedience, and there's a fall. And since we live in that fallen, broken world, we know we will have trouble. Jesus, the creator of that world, told us that. In this life, you will have trouble. And that's a promise from him. And it's followed by another promise But take heart, for I've overcome the world. Blessed are those who mourn implies we will mourn. And that's followed by yet another promise, for they will be comforted. And these promises are so good, and they're so true, and they're so beautiful. But when you're in the midst of that suffering, when you're in the midst of that grief, you think they must be true for someone else. They can't be true for me in my situation. I just read an article this morning, and I, I had to put it in here. It was Christianity Today. And they were uh, talking about the PCA's 50th anniversary. And it says this, PCA's 50th anniversary comes during a season of grief. Presbyterians expect less fight and more fatigue as they gather following the covenant shooting and the deaths of Harry Reeder and Tim Keller. You see, our denomination's in a season of grief right now. And we definitely need prayer. And the article starts by saying this, In his first sermon since the death of his young daughter and five others at the Covenant School in Nashville, Chad Scruggs, senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, referenced Isaiah 40 to describe how his family is coping. He said, We aren't yet soaring on wings like eagles. We aren't yet running without being weary. We're simply trying to walk without fainting. And it's like the the choir saying, it's step by step. Each day in this fallen world is step by step as the Lord loves us and leads us and carries us. And as he sanctifies us through our grief, through our suffering, he gives us perseverance. The author, the theologian C.S. Lewis, he was profoundly changed by the death of his wife, Joy, Joy Davidman. And he wrote a book about it called A Grief Observed. He recounts the process of dealing with her death in light of the gospel and wrestling with the goodness of God. He writes, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God at all, but so this is what God's really like. He continues, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. 
the same fluttering in that stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and myself. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's all so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. He goes on to say the death of a beloved is an amputation. And joy's absence is like the sky spread over everything. I'm not telling you anything new, am I? You see, grief and loss leaves fingerprints on everything that it touched And you would smell something. I'd smell something and it reminded me of my grandfather. Or you hear a song and you say, my spouse and I used to dance to that song. That was our song. An old toy would fall out of a box and you say, I remember the sound of laughter in my silent, quiet, childless home. These are fingerprints. They're echoes. They're memories. And these griefs don't really leave us. But the Bible says they don't really have to. They don't really have to necessarily leave, and they won't necessarily leave until eternity. Not entirely. We're aiming for a better country. Lewis again writes, Grief is like a long valley, a winding valley where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. And so the psalmist tells us we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the Christian's task is to learn to walk With no fear. For God is with us. His rod of correction, his staff of protection, they comfort us and they guide us. And it's in our darkest days where prayer and God's word becomes the lamp to our feet and the lights to our path. In that light, the scars of this life, all the scars that we have on us from from tragedies and illnesses, all these things, they really become testimonies to God's faithfulness. And to our own perseverance and grace. These are survival scars and they act as witnesses to to us, to others, to family, to friends. We say, look at the scars. Because that's where God pushed me through. And we know as believers, we look to other scars, don't we? The scars of our Savior. As testimonies to God's love of his own faithfulness. You see, the wounds of this life are where the light shines through. And so when we have these wounds, when we have these grief, we can shine the light of the gospel through. We point others to the wounds of Christ. And we say our Savior suffered just like us. I want us to briefly look today at two stories from Scripture of grief and see what they can teach us about prayer. I'm going to go ahead and apologize. They're two big chunks, and we do not have time to go as in-depth as I would like. But I want to glean from them what we can learn about prayer and what we can learn about suffering from both of them. The first one is, how do we pray for others? How do we uh, help others? How do we love others who are suffering? And the last one is, how do we pray for ourselves? How do we walk in God's light when we are in the dark hours of our soul? So I'm going to pray for us first, and then we're going to read the text. Let's pray. Jesus, we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you are with us. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. And even now, as we approach such a difficult topic and we approach your word, we ask that you would guide us. We've been asking you to teach us how to pray, Lord. Teach us how to read as well. Teach us how to learn from your word. Would you do it today, Lord? We pray in your name. Amen. 
This is Luke 5, 17 through 26. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I would uh, greatly encourage that. On one of those days as he was teaching, that's Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they, were glor- and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things. Today, As we think about how to pray and care for others who are in a season of grief, I think this little story from Luke has so much to teach us. I see really three points that accompany prayer, that should accompany our prayer for others. And the first one is this. It's precise prayer and precise action. Now, the first thing to notice is that this man has a definite need. What's the need? He's paralyzed. And the friends have a definite prayer for him. They want him to be healed. They have enough faith in Jesus. They know that if if we can just get our friend into the midst of Jesus, he can do something. We don't know what exactly, but but he can help our friend. And so we're going to move mountains to get our friend into Jesus' midst. And that's really what we're doing in prayer, isn't it? We, we are bringing our friends and our family and our neighbors and even, yes, our enemies to the feet of our king. And we're saying, you can do something, can't you? You, you, can, you can help the need here. We, we're handing you to the, to the Lord. We're handing our loved ones into the arms of a Christ who loves them, of a Savior who is calling to them. And we're saying, could you care for them? So these friend, friends have a definite goal. They have a definite action That they're going to take. And that's also what we need when it comes to prayer. You see, it's so possible to waste your time in prayer. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. How you start praying and your mind wanders. And you go over here and you go over there. And then you start becoming vague. And we want our prayers to be targeted. To be intentional. To be focused as much as possible. That's why prayerless are so important. It keeps you on track. And so when you pray, think of faces, think of names, think of people that need to be prayed for. I, I run around my neighborhood and I have this little mental directory of all, of all of you folk in here. And I go through your faces and your names and I pray for you and I pray for your families. Singles, kids, elderly, young people, everyone. And then I also intentionally pray for people I haven't even met yet. I will pray for empty pews here and I'll say, Lord, I'm, I'm thinking of a pew And I would like you to fill that pew. And then I know that I I expect God to do it. And I I, I pray for the person who will fill that pew. 
And so if you're here visiting today for the first time, I prayed for you. You're an answer to my prayers. Now, isn't that, isn't that remarkable? And that's an encouragement to me, and it's, it should be an encouragement to you as well. And so I want to I tell you, grab your directory, pray through it. You know, go, go grab the phone book if you want to, and pray through that. I know there's Sunday school teachers here. They, they have their little rosters of kids, and they pray through for your children. Isn't that amazing? They pray for your kids, and they pray for the adults, and it's just, it's, it, you're being covered in prayer. And so be focused, be intentional. Another way this applies is, is rudderless directional spirits. Have you ever uh, heard a prayer and, you know, they're giving a TED talk to God, right? Uh, they're giving him information he's had since the very dawn of time. And, and, and they go wonder, you know, they're going all these things. And you want to stop them and say, could you just ask for something? Are you going to actually ask for something here? You see, God knows what you need before You even say it, and so ask. You see, that's the language used. Jesus says, ask and receive. Seek and find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So ask. Be intentional with what you pray about. The second thing to see from the text is the friend's persistence. I love this so much. Verse 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus, You know, this is classic men problem solving, you know, <laughs> can't get through the door. Well, we'll just vandalize the roof, you know, we'll drop them through, you know, and you can imagine them jerry rigging this thing. And, you know, they're dropping them in and it's not safe what they're doing. It, it's 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 incredibly uh, awkward. You know, the light shines through and they're going, excuse us. And they start dropping them in. Who among us is this persistent in prayer? I see two cars in the Wendy's drive-thru, and I'm like, time to go somewhere else. Okay? I'm impatient. And these men are so determined. They love their friends so much, they keep at it. You know, they didn't, they didn't stop at the crowd. They didn't stop at the door. In Luke 18 and 11, Jesus tells two parables about this exact thing, about the persistence or importunity we should have in prayer. One is the picture of a man who knocks and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks until his friend opens up and says, can I have some bread? And he says, yes, just leave me alone. (laughs) And he gets the bread. And the other is a woman who bothers a judge until he finally says, fine, here's justice. I'll give you justice. It's an unrighteous judge. And neither of those parables is Jesus saying, that's like, that's what God's like. You know, you have to beg him and beg him. Or you have to bother him until you obtain favor. He's saying it's the opposite of that. God is, is, loves you. God wants you to come. If, if, he's, if you ask for bread, he will delight to give you bread. He loves to give justice to his people. But you see, the problem is the person who, who knocks and asks for bread and then leaves before the door even opens, they weren't really hungry, were they? And the person who knocks before the door even even opens never gets the joy of receiving the one on the other side. And we can do this in our own life. We can can ding-dong ditch with God. You know, Lord, can you... Okay, no problem, no no problem, you know. I don't want to bother you. And we do it with our hurting friends as well. It's, It's awkward. When someone is going through a tragedy, what do you say? What, you know, I'll say the wrong things. I'll mess up, you know, and you come up with these thousand different reasons why you shouldn't knock, 
why you shouldn't ask. You know, I'm not going to comfort them because I'll just be a bother to them. And the reasons almost always stem from our own discomfort rather than the person who's actually hurting. C.S. Lewis again writes, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate if they do, and I hate if they don't. (laughs) When you're in that moment of pain and grief, you want people to say something, but you don't want them to say something. And so there's awkward on both sides. Imagine if these friends had just stayed polite. Hey, you know, I heard Jesus was in town, but I don't want to be rude. He's busy. He's a busy guy. You know, I don't want to bring up uh, our friend's paralysis. I don't want to make him feel uncomfortable. He knows he's paralyzed, but I don't want to bring it up. You know, I don't want to hurt our friendship. Do you ever make excuses like that? I have. And I thank God that these friends had the courage not to do that, but to grab their buddy. No, we're taking you. We're taking you. We're taking you to Jesus. We're bringing you to the feet of Jesus. We have faith he can do something. It will never be perfect. What you say will never be perfect. A simple hug, a card in the mail. I'm I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. That can suffice. And then you have to go before the Lord. You have to actually do what you're going to say you're going to do. Go pray for that person. Carry them to the feet of Jesus in prayer and say, Lord, they're struggling and they're hurting. And you know what that feels like, don't you, Jesus? And so be with them. Our final point here from that, that portion is that we must submit to God in prayer. Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now imagine being on the roof. What did he say? I think he said his sins are forgiven. Jesus, he's paralyzed. Forget the sins. We're not worried about the sins, Jesus. We're worried about the paralysis. Isn't that interesting? Jesus starts not with the physical healing, but with the spiritual healing. That always is what matters most. That's always what matters most. And, and grief and trouble and trial, all of it's because of sin. You know, I got stung by a bee when I was running yesterday because of sin. Thanks, Adam. You know, <laughs> that's how sin works. But what I need is deliverance from sin. I need Christ crucified. I need him raised from the dead. I need forgiveness of sins. And so, yes, Jesus will heal this man physically, but first he heals him spiritually. And so we have to submit to the form of God's answer. We have to submit to the method of God's answer, and we have to submit to the timing of God's answer. I'm not God. I can't see, you know, 2020 from past to future. God can. He knows all things. And so I will even have petitions where I'm asking God for something and he will say no because it will have unintended circumstances for other people. You know, sometimes the most loving answer I can give my children as a father is no. I'm sorry, you can't have a seventh donut today. That's not good. No, you're not going to have that. And just as children don't understand the no or even the yes sometimes, with God, we don't always understand the no or the yes. There have been times I've prayed for hours with tears only to receive a no. And then there are times where I've done the same thing and and the Lord has said, not yet, not yet. 
And he, and he does it down the line, and it's glorious. And I think, yeah, that was better. <laughs> that was better than what I had in mind. Jesus says in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. You see, that's prayer. That's conforming our hearts to God's will. Finally, this sacred service of prayers for all the saints. I've been so excited. I've been so encouraged by Pastor Tommy Carr and Elaine and, and Bill Dodrell and his wife, Jan, and what they've been doing with our, our honor roll and with our shut-ins. And it's just been so encouraging to me. I love getting texts from them going, we just had communion over here. It's just so encouraging to me. And the other thing that's so encouraging is when they come back and they report and they go, you know, so-and-so has been praying this whole time for the church. And I say, yes, I know they have. I know they have. Because even though they're not with us physically, they're with us. They're with us. They're holding us up in prayer. And this world is filled with hurting people who are desperate Desperate to be around men and women who have been around their God in prayer. Pastor A.C. Dixon once said, When we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so forth and so on. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what only God can do. And the world needs what only God can do. Who, who, who do you know that needs what only God can do? Who do you need to take to the Lord in prayer today? Who can you do? Who can you do that for? That's our first passage. The next passage is just, it's a beautiful passage, but it's so, uh, it's so painful. It's a painful portion of scripture. I can think of very few things worse in the life of anyone than the death of a child. And in God's wisdom, he includes this account of the death of David and Bathsheba's child, I think, to comfort his people, to comfort those who have dealt with this loss. If you don't know the context, David has committed this heinous sin. He's committed murder. He's killed Bathsheba's husband. He's taken her as his own, and she's become pregnant. And the Lord has sent the prophet Nathan to confront him with his own sin. And David accepts it, and he realizes it. And the punishment is that their child dies, the loss of their child. So let's read this together. This is 2 Samuel 12, 15 through 25. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became very sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with any of them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? 
whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, this is, there's a lot to, to take away from this passage. But I want to pick out just a few really brief moments here from David's grief. The first thing is that when great tragedy comes, we must seek the Lord. We must take time to be alone with our God in prayer. You see, David fasted and he prayed and he petitioned the Lord. And we know from Psalm 51, if you if you know Psalm 51, we have his prayer. We know exactly what he fasted and prayed about. The psalm starts with this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Again, it was, it was the spiritual, wasn't it? He doesn't start with the physical. He starts with the spiritual. He was so aware of his own sin. He was aware of his deep need before the righteous and holy God. And he was aware that only God could do anything about this situation. And so he went to wrestle with the Lord. There are plenty of times when we must follow this example. We must follow David's example, what Jesus did in the garden. Jesus was there in the garden praying, sweating, what was like drops of blood in prayer. The story of Jacob at Bethel wrestling with the angel of the Lord, that's that's really a story about prayer, isn't it? He wrestles with the Lord until he obtains a blessing. And all of us here need a, a Bethel. All of us need a place of solitude, of loneliness, that we can make sacred by prayer. It's of equal importance that there should be a special time set for prayer. It's so, it's so, you're so busy. You're so busy. I, I get that. We're, we're so busy. But if you're too busy for prayer, it's time to reevaluate your priorities. What matters most is a cultivation and a habit and a practice of prayer. When I first started this series, I said, I want you to know how to pray, but I'm more concerned that you do pray. I want you to pray because you will not be able to handle the troubles of this life alone until you have learned how to be alone with the God, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means habits need to be formed. Luke 18, 1, Jesus says he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And that parable, again, is the persistent widow. And he he says, if men will pray, they will not lose heart. And if men do not pray, they will lose heart. You see, Jesus was not naive to the pressures and the strains and the pains of this life. He did not think that life was easy. He understood it wasn't easy. He understood what it was like to live in a sinful, fallen world. He was a man of grief, the Bible says, acquainted with sorrows. He knew how easy it would be for men and women to grow faint and to grow weary and to lose heart and so he was a man of constant prayer and he encourages us to be a people of prayer as well in the midst of instability a regular time in prayer creates stability fellowship with god as activity will issue in fellowship with god as an attitude hebrews 4:16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace why 
that we might receive mercy and find grace to help those in a time of need. The second thing to note from the passage is this in verse 20. Then David arose from the earth. He washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Isn't, isn't that, I mean, it's just, you read that and you go, it's just glorious. When he realizes, when David realizes that God has chosen, no, there are consequences for sin, David. The child is going to die. He, he, he gets up, he washes himself, he cleans, and then he goes and worships. He worships. And I talked about this two weeks ago. My heart breaks for those who are dealing with with depression or anxiety or a loss or grief, and they, and they seclude themselves. They lock their doors and they hide and they, they, don't, they don't want to talk to anyone. And James says, don't do that. Our passage from James says, call the elders, call the saints, call your brothers and sisters. They love you. You're not a burden to them. They love you. And so David gets up in his grief. He gets up in his grief, not out of the grief. He gets up from it and he worships in the midst of grief to the Lord. And that's where we go to. That's where you should go. When you're hurting, come. Come to where God's people are. Come to where the Lord has promised he might be found. Come to us. Tell us you're hungry. David said, I'm hungry. Let us feed you. We'll give you meal trains like you wouldn't believe. We want to feed you. We want to take care of you. Run to God, not away from God. Last thing here is in verse 23. Again, I wish I had so much more time for this. And I probably will talk about this at another date. David says, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I chose this passage partly because I, I thought it went really well with Luke. But also because I know personally, and I'm sure many of you know personally, friends and family who have lost children. And I want to tell you that I, from the, from the Bible, as, as well as Calvin and Edwards and MacArthur and Warfield, many others, we want to tell you, you we have tremendous hope that infants, or as the Westminster Confession puts it, elect infants are saved by Christ. I want to do an entire sermon on that topic eventually because it deserves it, because we've neglected that. We really need to encourage people and tell them, you will see your child again. The God that we worship is a covenantal God and his promises are to us and to our children. And so we have hope. We have hope. Randy Alcorn, who uh, many of you are familiar with, he's an author, a pastor. So he's written so many books on heaven. And he talks about Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, which speaks of an earth where the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain. And Alcorn takes that passage and he says this. If Isaiah 11 is speaking of the new earth as it does in parallel passages in Isaiah 65, then who are the infants and the young children playing with the animals? Is it possible that children after they've been resurrected on the new earth, will be at the same level of development as when they died. If so, these children would presumably be allowed to grow up on the new earth, a childhood that would be enviable, to say the least. 
Believing parents then would presumably be able to see their little children grow up and likely have a major role in their lives as they do so. Although it's not directly stated, and I'm therefore speculating, it's possible that parents whose hearts were broken through the death of their child will not only be reunited with them, but will also experience the joy of seeing them grow up in a perfect world. Again, that's speculation, but isn't that like our God? To do something like that. And when Paul says you can't even fathom what heaven's going to be like, wouldn't that be like our God to do something like that? David says, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, David had that hope. David had hope he was going to see that little baby boy one day. I close with uh, just a, a story about the singer Stephen Curtis Chapman, if you're familiar with him. Uh, I admire him greatly. And many years ago, you might have read about the tragedy that befell his family. His five-year-old daughter was, was accidentally run over by his then 17-year-old son named Will Franklin. And Chapman's wife, Mary Beth, recalled in an interview, she said, the girls had been playing on the playground, and she, Maria, was actually excited that he, Will Franklin, was coming home. And he's so great with the girls. They just love him. And she was running to see him and, you know, ran, you know, into the path of the car, she said. After being struck by the vehicle in the driveway of the family's home, the five-year-old Maria Sue was rushed to a Nashville hospital where she later died from her injuries. And her brother Will, realizing what had happened, got out of the car and saw his little sister, which he had hit, and he panicked. And he just start, took off running. He didn't know what to do. He was scared. And he ran. And his older brother Caleb came rushing at him and tackled him to the ground and just started praying in his ear. And his father, Stephen, was getting in the car to go to the hospital. And he rolled down the car window and he yelled as loud as he could. He yelled with as much strength as he could muster, Will Franklin, your father loves you. And Chapman said in an interview, I just really had a deep concern in my heart that I wouldn't lose two children as a result of this because I knew that Will was struggling with it. Mary Beth closes the interview by saying, because of my faith, I know that she's completely whole and completely okay, and I'm going to see her again. I mean, that's the joy of Christianity, isn't it? Because he lives. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. And when you run from your sin and the effects of your sin in your life, David says, do the opposite. And Christ, your older brother, tackles you with his love. And he holds you down to the ground and says, don't run. Don't run. And when all hope seems lost, you can hear the voice of the father calling, your father loves you. Your father loves you. You see, the father sent Nathan the prophet because he loved David. And then right after, if you continue reading that story, he sends Solomon. And he names him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And Jesus took on flesh and he dwelled among us and he knows. He knows. And so for all those who have placed their faith in him today, we have hope. We have hope in the midst of grief, in the midst of suffering. We will, like Lewis, move from observing grief 
to being surprised by joy. The fingerprints of grief always remain, don't they? By God's grace, we find fullness of joy in his presence. Psalm 34, 17 through 18, the righteous cry out, the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Hear the words of the old hymn as we close today. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's carry it to him now. Let's pray.